Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest vodcast. And this is going to be a new one. This is a new talk I put together for the uh, NASCI meeting last week, and it's on the complications of cardiac surgery. There's a very good article just published this past week by Linda Chewett Hopkins, talking about complications after aortic root surgery. And the article makes the point that after aortic root surgery, we can look at complications as either within the aorta, complications outside the aorta, and benign postoperative changes. And we also make the point in this article that sometimes it's very obvious what is a complication, but sometimes a lot of the post-op normal changes are something that can be confused. So it's a very important diagnosis to be able to make, especially these days with more and more cardiac CT indeed being done and more cardiac surgery being done. Now, aortic surgery is not an uncomplicated event. Uh, in elective surgery, mortality rates are less than 5% and continue to decrease, but these patients are truly at risk for developing both early and late-term post-operative complications. Now, if we're looking at the aorta, and I'll just say if you're looking surely at the ascending aorta, you need to do a gated acquisition. Otherwise, there's all these pseudo-lesions because of motion. Is there a dissection or not present? What's going on? It makes it very, very tricky. You also get a good look at the coronaries. You have a dissection. You can see how far it is if you're looking for pseudoaneurysms. They're easier to recognize. So contrast-enhanced scans, you can trigger off the ascending or descending aorta. You can do a timing bolus, so I will admit triggering is much better. Typically, 5 cc's a second works very nicely. 100 to 120 cc's works well, though you can drop it to probably 80 cc's in patients with borderline renal function. We'll always do thin scan parameters, 0.75 millimeter thick sections at 0.5, because we're going to do post-processing, whether it's multiplanar with coronal and sagittal and oblique, or it's 3D imaging. And in fact, in our practice, we will do both. When you look at the aortic root or the aorta or most vascular structures, a volume visualization indeed becomes very, very critical. In terms of non-contrast CT, in select cases, non-contrast is very helpful. Remember things like intramural hematomas are best recognized or maybe only recognized on non-contrast CT. Also, it helps you on non-contrast CT to know if there's some foreign matter present, like pledgets, and you don't want to confuse those things potentially with a leak, for example. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that there are three ways of thinking about the complications within, outside, and then benign post-operative findings. And let's look at things that way. Now, there's a good article by Prescott recently as well that talks about post-operative complications seen at CTA and again mentioned some of them from pseudoaneurysms to stenosis to sections and aneurysms. And those tend to fit into that category of complications within the aortic root. Endoleak would be there, coronary osteal aneurysms, particularly with reimplanted coronary arteries. So let's look at one of the complications, and one we see more frequently is pseudoaneurysms. They're infrequent, but we have seen more of them. Metastenitis and graft infections are the most common risk factors. Also, patients with relatively poor tissue in the aorta, Marfan's and Takayashu's, for example, are more apt to develop pseudoaneurysms. Also, dissection of the native aorta and excessive use of biologic glue in repair can all predispose to pseudoaneurysms. When you look at the most common location, graft anastomosis site, coronary artery anastomosis site, 
aortotomy site, aortic cannulation site, and needle vent site are the ones we think about, with the graft anastomosis site being the most common. And it's not a surprise. If you weaken the wall of the aorta by reimplanting a vessel or making an incision, that's going to be the area most likely that you will get complications. So when you look at the patients who develop pseudoaneurysms, sometimes as an incidental finding, we will do a routine follow-up on a patient and we'll see a pseudoaneurysm. In other cases, the patients are very symptomatic, ranging from chest pain to cardiac failure to sepsis. So it will indeed vary. Typically, the treatment of choice is with aortic graft replacement and now with stenting. Let's look at a few nice examples. This is a patient with history of cardiac failure, post-cardiac transplantation, and you very nicely see the large pseudoaneurysm at the anastomotic site. There's a dissection present. This pseudoaneurysm is above the level of the right coronary artery. So that's at the graft anastomosis site. Here's a pseudoaneurysm at the coronary reimplantation or anastomosis site. Again, this patient had a high risk because it was a patient who had Marfan's. You can see the reimplanted right coronary artery. And next to it, we see the pseudoaneurysm. Or in this case, you can see a pseudoaneurysm projected anteriorly at the site of a previous aortic cannulation. So those are, again, uh, very, very important. You also recognize that this pseudoaneurysm projects behind the sternum. If you're doing a reprocedure, a uh, reoperating on the patient, doing another medial stenotomy, you of course need to be very careful so you don't cause any damage and catastrophic events that potentially will follow. I mentioned a moment ago that the surgery is the treatment of choice for pseudoaneurysms with aortic graft replacement. The optimal treatment Patch repair is usually reserved for small aneurysms. The mortality rate of aortic root pseudoaneurysms has been reported between 6 and 60%. And often it's the comorbidities or the condition of the patient that will determine the patient's eventual outcome. There's been some thought, as with many things, about endovascular stent placement. But there have only been a few reported cases of endovascular stent repair. And there are definitely limitations, depending on the location of the pseudoaneurysm, and the size of its neck. In terms of endovascular treatment of pseudoaneurysms, uh, stent grafts sometimes may be possible, coil embolization potentially, and thrombin injection. But again, typically surgery is the way to go. Now, a couple other examples. We are seeing TAVERS, these uh, trans uh, aortic, va uh, aortic valve replacements. Uh, in older patients, and not surprisingly, these patients have weaker aortas, and you're going to see complications. Here on 3D and axial, you can see the patient's aortic valve replacement, but posterior is an outpouching, and when you give contrast, you nicely see the outpouching, a very nice example of aortic valve replacement via Tever with a, a pseudoaneurysm. Nice example. And here's a few more images of that. And here again, you can see in this case, very nicely shown with 3D rendering, the pseudoaneurysm, very nicely defined. Now, when we talk about complications in the aortic root, I mentioned coronary artery osteoaneurysms. Uh, these aneurysms may develop at coronary artery implantation sites, and as noted, especially in patients with weakened aortas with connective tissue diseases like Marfan's or Lowy's Dietz. We've seen a lot of cases, and most of them are asymptomatic, and there is this question of what you should do before people were more aggressive about reoperating. Now we wonder, do you really need to operate? So conservative management usually is what is being done. 
again, um, there's a lot of questions as to the best technique. And uh, here's a good example. Aortic uh, arch repair. You can see the dilated left subclavian. This patient has Marfan's, had a uh, valve sparing procedure with aortic root replacement. Look at the size of those reimplanted coronaries, right and left, markedly dilated. Or in this example, look at the size of the patient's right coronary uh, reimplantation side, measuring well over a centimeter. Now you can see it's impressive, but not as impressive as the last case. And I'll show it to you in a range of 3D reconstructions. Now, when I mention complication of the aortic root or the uh, coronaries, this case always comes to mind. This is a patient presented with a chest wall mass that was thought to be a breast mass. You see in the non-contrast CT, and this patient was relatively asymptomatic except for the expanding mass. There's fluid in the right chest and chest wall. And then look at the ascending aorta. There's high-density material. That's blood. And look at the uh, contrast-enhanced exam. You don't appreciate the blood. You see the dilated ascending aorta, but you don't see any communication. The patient did have a tap of this fluid, and it was blood, but no one could figure out why, and the patient went on with their business. Came back three months later, severe chest pain. Non-contrast, not all that impressive, but look at the contrast enhancement. Look at the area where the patient's left main coronary artery arises, and you can see active extravasation. There's a leak from the uh, coronary where there was reimplantation previously, nicely shown on the sagittal and the 3D renderings. Just a very nice example of this active bleeding. And it was an amazing case. It tracked down through the chest wall. And this patient did well. The uh, patient was indeed very lucky. Just look at those images. Again, this case is a wonderful example of a non-contrast CT where the intramural hematoma is really well-defined. You can see the gap at about 5 o'clock where the patient's left main coronary artery is sewn up, but you saw the actual leak. A very, very nice example. And this was a very nice case. Uh, Jonathan Samet uh, reported this case. And this was a patient who presented many years after the initial surgery. Uh, extremely interesting how this can happen. Uh, patients who undergo a dental procedure have a lower late survival risk, but uh, again, uh, those are the patients who often have these complications. But again, this was a most unusual case. Now, if we look beyond the aortic root, then we think about things ranging from pneumonia to pulmonary embolism to hemothorax to mediastinitis to sternal involvement like sternal dehiscence or infection and perigraph seromas. If I focus only on two of these, which will be mediastinitis and sternal dehiscence, I think it's a challenge at time mediastinitis in the post-op patient. Everyone has some fluid present. Commonly, patients will have air bubbles for several days. This was five days out. The problem is, is could this be post-op normal? The answer is yes. Is the fluid increasing? Is the air bubbles developing? Then, of course, you would say it's new infection. But this was increasing over time. Because of the high suspicion clinically, it was cultured and it was positive for serratia uh, marsicens. So again, suspicion becomes very, very important because, again, there will be some fluid in air post-op. When you talk about mediastinitis, the incidence is up to 5%. Mortality rate can be up to 50% depending on how late the diagnosis is made. Presentation is sepsis and fever and chest pain. And again, the difficulty is distinguishing early infection from post-operative change. 
article by Catabathia makes the point that Q-mediastinitis occurs in up to 5% of patients who underwent mediastinotomy and has a reported mortality rate of up to 80%. Staph is the most common causative microorganism. So again, staph infection in a surgical bed is obviously going to do very poorly. They also comment the presence of mediastinal gas bubbles and fluid on CT after the 14th post-op day has a sensitivity and specificity approaching 100% for diagnosis of acute mediastinitis. I would agree there, but I'll tell you, that's a long time to wait. The real challenge is three to five days after surgery when the patient is still febrile. Now, what do you look for with acute mediastinitis? Increased attenuation of the mediastinal fat, the presence of gas bubbles, localized fluid, enlarging lymph nodes from infection, pleural effusions, and empyema can all be very helpful findings. Also, the history is helpful. This was a patient who was being intubated for cardiac surgery repair. You see the esophagus, you see air free, and we gave oral contrast. You can see this extra luminal air, and that was a perforation of the esophagus. So again, um, positive contrast can be helpful in these cases, particularly if the patients have had a procedure. Now, I mentioned also sternal dehiscence. Um, typically, things you see, displacement of sternal wires, rotation of wires, fracture of wires, and widening of the mediastinal stripe. It will occur in up to 7% of cases, but typically the patients have risk factors. Obesity, lung disease, diabetes, steroid use are all increased likelihood that the patient is going to develop a complication regardless of the type of complication that develops. Here's a good example of a patient with dehiscence of the sternum. You can see the fluid and inflammation in the chest wall. Or here's another example where there's a sternal wound. There's drainage coming out of the midline. You can see that the lower wires have uh, basically uh, become uh, poorly positioned. And you can see the gap that is present there. And you can see what I do color-coded very nicely defining that process. Again, the wires weren't fractured, but the lower wires are displaced. CT with 3D mapping is very good at looking at sternum post-repair. Nice example here. Look at the lower clips that's fallen off the left side of the sternum. There's marked increased uh, dehiscence of the lower portion of the sternum. Very nicely defined in that region. And you can see it really well on the range of 3D images. One of the challenges I do find when you look at the sternum post-op is looking at bony changes. Is there osteomyelitis present or is it just periosteal reaction? In this case, you begin to see some sclerotic changes on the right side of the sternum. And when I see asymmetry, I always will worry about infection. And this is a very nice example to show that. Now, other things very important to recognize in the post-operative period, to recognize what procedures the patient had. Patients with elephant trunk procedures, it can be very complicated. Look like dissections, aortic arch, the branching with arterial reimplantation can be very confusing. And then just the fact that patient has hyperdense surgical material can indeed be something that's very challenging. A good example here, you have felt strips, for example, uh, felt pledges have high attenuation. And if only on the contrast scans, you might think about extravasation. So again, non-contrast scans, if you're in doubt, can be very helpful. If you didn't do non-contrast, getting delayed scans indeed will be very, very helpful. And this whole idea about post-operative change causing all sorts of problems is something that's been written about in many articles. This article by Prestot Falk, for example. Um, and again, this whole idea in, in other articles by FAM as well. 
Fair makes the point that uh, echo and fluoroscopy may not allow the identification of specific causes of complications, while CT and MR are significantly better. Whether you do CT or an MR depends on local experience and patient characteristics, but again, CT is a five-second study in this scenario and indeed works very nicely. Now, other complications one can look at, for example, once there's valve replacement, uh, CT is very good, particularly with a gated acquisition and retrospective gating, for example, although there can be issues with beam hardening artifact, we can indeed do very, very nicely. When you look at cardiac surgery and talk about long versus short-term complications, um, again, that's something to think about. This is more of a long-term complication. Here, you're looking at the patient who's having chest pain, had priority valve replacement. There's a low density on the left component of the valve leaflet, and that's going to be thrombus. But even more so, when you start looking at the patient's aortic valve leaflets, you can see that when you do motion, that the leaflets are not moving correctly. The patient's leaflet, uh, you can see they're not opening all the way. It's poor motion and a very, very nice example of showing you failure. Now, the low density, what is that? The low density is thrombus on a failed valve. Just a very nice example. And here you can see again, as I've isolated the valve, you can see the two parts of the valve are not opening in symmetry. And this is a failed valve. This patient was very lucky. The patient survived long enough to get redo surgery. Now, a few last things. We talk about the pericardium. It's usually under two millimeters thick, has a minimal amount of fluid present, but the pericardium can be one of the areas that's involved in the post-operative period. It can be at times somewhat of a challenge, but typical things like pericardial hemorrhage, very nicely seen in this example. When you have large amounts of blood, you have to worry about cardiac tamponade, for example, and then you'll see things like either the SVC diameter is uh, similar or greater than the adjacent aorta, or the IVC is twice the aorta. Those are things that can be very helpful. Periportal edema and reflux of contrast in the IVC are very important findings. We also see complications of patients who've had repair. This patient was stabbed, had a pseudoaneurysm in the left ventricle, was repaired, now has chest pain again. When you look at the axial images, it looks like almost the stomach opacified, but that's the heart, and look at the coronals. That's a large pseudoaneurysm off the left ventricle. The patient had a pseudoaneurysm developing at the site of prior stabbing and the site of prior repair. This patient was exceedingly lucky. Look at the multiple images showing you the size of that pseudoaneurysm, and this patient survived. So the range of complications we can look at, CT is critical in the management of the patient following cardiac surgery. It's important to understand the normal post-op findings to be able to distinguish them from the post-op complications. Technique is very important, things like pseudoaneurysms. You're only going to recognize with gating and with 3D post-processing, so technique becomes very important. So hopefully I reviewed with you some of the key findings in the post-operative patient following cardiac surgery, a number of the complications, and hopefully you found that very helpful. And with that, have a great day.